This morning's title is Religious Trials of the Lamb. <clears throat> In Genesis, the 22nd chapter, and verse 8, Abraham said these words to Isaac, his son. God will provide a lamb for himself. In Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, in verse 7, speaking of the coming Messiah, he says, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. We are reminded from Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, in verse 4, that he was smitten of God and afflicted. In the fifth chapter of Isaiah 53, we read these words. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. In Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, again, verse 10, it says, he would render himself as a guilt offering. By the time we come to the gospel that we are studying together, as we have already expounded in the very first chapter in the 29th verse, it was John the Baptist who, spotting specifically Jesus of Nazareth, pointed to his followers and to others around him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sin of the world. Quite frankly, we could conclude the message right here. To think that God, the Lord, sent his son, Jesus Christ, as a lamb as a lamb to be tried, to be mocked, to be abused, and to be killed by those who were created as his masterpiece of creation, created in the image and likeness of God, that human beings would take him into their hands and crucify him. What a sad commentary on the emptiness, the vileness of man, the depths to which he would go to satisfy his own personal interest. But I say to you right away in the introduction this morning, what a picture of humility. What a picture of love. What a picture of the reality of the cost of our salvation for those who have trusted in Christ. And a magnificent love and extent, the cost of sin and the love of God. In our text, we have come to see that by this time in the 18th chapter of John, Jesus Christ was arrested in Gethsemane, betrayed by one of his own, Judas Iscariot, but I remind us again, if you look at chapter 18, and if you take a quick scan at verse 4 and verse 11, I remind us that the Lord Jesus Christ is in absolute, total control. 
he says, knowing all the things that were coming upon him. He went forth and said to them, whom do ye seek? And in verse 11, the latter part of the passage, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? This is not an accident. This is not being overpowered by those whom he could not overpower. It is absolute humility and submission to the plan of God, the only plan that could satisfy a righteous and holy God and pay for the penalty of sin. A sacrifice of a perfect lamb, a sacrifice of him who knew no sin that would die for those who were sinners. What a picture. Now we find him taken to trial. Let me give you a little bit of clarification here as we concluded last week. Technically, there are really two trials, as we saw last week. There are, there are commonly referred to as six trials, but there are really two trials with three aspects to it. There is the religious authorities that he has brought before, which is, in all technicality, one trial in which there are three occurrences where he's presented before them. And then there is the civil trial in which, again, he will be presented on three different occasions. But it is all surrounding, basically, two things, a trial before the religious authorities and a trial before the civil authorities. As we noted last week, particularly in this text, in John chapter 18, verses 12 to 14, which we covered last week, in 19 through verse 23, in John's text, he is first brought before the religious authorities. And we notice that he is brought forth before Annas, if you look at verse 13. And in verses 14, uh, 13, and particularly in verses 19 through 23, we saw that last week. He was the retired high priest, if we can use that example. Now understand that in God's economy, as he designed it in the Old Testament, the high priest was to serve for life. He was the high priest for life. But by the time that Christ is on the scene, things had deteriorated so much that by political appointment by the Roman government, the high priest was put in power. And at one time, though he still carried the influence, Annas was the high priest, but now for some time, he had been removed, but was still highly respected. Five of his sons, as we saw, had served, and now his son-in-law is serving as the high priest only because Rome was allowing the Jewish government, if you will, or the Jewish people to carry on their religion in their own government, subject to Rome, but they wanted the final say in who would be the high priest, totally outside of the economy of God, but that's what was going on. Being brought before Annas, as we saw last week, was totally illegal, totally unjust. And why? Why was this going on? Primarily, as we noted, to allow time for the Sanhedrin to get assembled. He had been taken from the garden and brought to Annas, and he was basically trying him, hoping to get him, or to get witnesses or whatever, to be found guilty while the total Sanhedrin was being put in place by his son-in-law. 
And I want you to notice that, again, it was done in his residence. We saw that last week. This was not done in the temple. Hold on to that again this morning. And for those of you that are very familiar that I do go verse by verse and so forth, we will be dealing with verses 14 through 18, and then later on, we will be dealing further with Peter's denials. But I want to deal with that all at once as I deal with first the religious trials because it is easy to follow that chronology, and then we'll fit Peter in and, Lord willing, deal with the denials next week. But now we find in John's account that he is brought before Caiaphas. As we know last week, there was no success before Annas. In fact, it ended with that when in verse 23 he said, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong, but if rightly, why do you strike me? And Annas was at a loss. There was nothing he could do. It was totally unjust. Jesus Christ had done nothing wrong, and they had no accusations to bring against him, but he submitted. And now Annas is going to bring him, verse 24, John says very little about it. John has very little to say other than verse 14 and verse 24. And in verse 24, the one I read, it's read, it simply says that he brought him to Caiaphas, the high priest. And if you go back to verse 14 for a moment, it says, now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Now why was he, does John say so little about it? Honestly, we're not sure. I'm not sure and neither are you, really. Maybe because of all the illegality that was going on and he just didn't want to spend all the time on it. But personally, I would say to you what you've heard from me from day one when we opened up the account of John in John chapter 1, verse 1, and you will continue to hear until we finish the book. I don't think it's that significant in relationship to the purpose that John has, which is in John chapter 20 and verse 31. And he's going to get into the denials and so forth. He wants people to know that Jesus is the Christ, and by knowing that he is the Son of God and he's the Messiah, that they would believe on him and have eternal life. And so he does not concentrate a lot on that. But he does mention in verse 14, which does have a connection to it, the irony of what Caiaphas said. Being the high priest and the son-in-law of Annas, he had actually prophesied about the death of Christ in the book that we've been studying. Go back to John chapter 11 for a moment. John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, now John chapter 11 should jump off the pages to anyone who knows a little bit about the Bible, because in that chapter, a very significant event took place, and that is the resurrection of Lazarus. And all the Lord needed was three words, Lazarus, come forth. He's been dead for four days. What does that matter to me? I created the world. If there's nothing left of him, I'm still bringing him forth. Watch. Lazarus, come forth. Out he came. Very simple. All right? So a significant event had taken place, and now they're saying, what are we going to do? Pick it up in verse 47. Therefore, the chief priests, who we have in John chapter 18... And the Pharisees convened a council, who we have in chapter 18. And they said, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe on him. And can you imagine that? Here's the religious leaders. <laughs> What's going to happen? Everybody's going to believe he's the Messiah. They'll be forgiven and get to heaven. That's not good news. Are you kidding me? 
How foolish of religious leaders. More concerned about, I had a conversation with a man last night, and I'll be very careful with this, but I had a conversation with an individual last night, and he was talking to me about what he does in life, and he was involved with a couple of religious leaders, and basically they were allowed to be overlooked because of what they were doing, and one of the reasons this man was still struggling today with understanding God or believing, and he was the one I had the opportunity to really share with my background and encourage him to take the Bible. Uh, he, he was talking to a guy who had been through some of that lack of trust and so forth, and he didn't know it. So I was able to share my background with him. But what led to that, he said, it absolutely puzzled him how these are supposed to be religious leaders and what they were doing, and they were more concerned about covering up some things than dealing with righteousness. And it brought me right back to what I knew I was going to preach on today. Yeah, that's what you've got here. The guys that are supposed to be teaching people how to know God and get to heaven don't even want them to believe on him because they're concerned about their religious games. They're concerned about playing church and religion. They're not concerned about the souls of men. We're concerned about the souls of men, and you ought to be concerned about the souls of men because God is. But it's interesting, ironically, in the midst of this, they're saying, what are we going to do? And they, they said, you know, if we let him go on, they're going to believe on him. And not only that, they're concerned about the Roman government. He says, and the Romans will come and take away both our place in the nation. And so Caiaphas speaks up and says this in verse 49. Caiaphas, who was the high priest th that year, just simply meaning he was the one that was appointed. It wasn't just for one year. Said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the, for the people and that the whole nation not perish. And he prophesies, basically. And what he says, I want you to understand, it is not his intent to talk about Jesus the Messiah. His intent and what he means, we know that from the text as you'll see in a minute, is that it's better for Jesus to die than uh, us lose the whole nation. So we better find a way to kill him. That's his thinking. It's expedient that one man die so that we don't all perish. We know that because if you look at verses 51 to 52, it tells us what God intent, God's intent is. He goes on and it says, now he did not say this of his own initiative, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied, that's why I can say that, that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one, the children of God, who are scattered abroad. In other words, here's the high priest. He's only concerned about preserving the nation physically and getting rid of this guy for death. And he says it's better that one guy die than all of us. And God's using him to prophesy because there is going to be the death of one man for the world. And that's Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting? It is to me. And by the way, let me just mention, isn't it interesting? The nation was destroyed in 70 AD. He was concerned about it. They lost. The one did die, but not for the purpose that he wanted. Is it possible to be used by God in spite of what man is trying to accomplish and he thinks he's accomplishing what he wants and God uses it for his good? This is a perfect example of it. Isn't it interesting how God carries out his purpose regardless of the deceit and regardless of the plans of men. That's what we have in John chapter 18. God is still accomplishing his purposes. But to get a picture of what went on and to finish with the trials, as I told you, I think it's necessary to do, we really need to turn to Matthew chapter 26 because all John says is simply, he gives us the prophecy. Why? To show us that he really is the Christ, and that's his purpose. 
And then he simply just mentions that after Annas was done, he basically takes him to Caiaphas, and then on to Peter he goes, and we'll pick it up there next week. But what about today? Go to G Matthew chapter 26, our responsive reading. Because I want to drive home a couple of points this morning. In Matthew 26, picking it up in verse 57, we now have the continuation of the religious trial, and this is the second aspect of it. <clears throat> and that's why I have the lamb was oppressed in your outline. This is where it is. It's Matthew 26, beginning of verse 57, <clears throat> to the first part of verse 63. Let me read it again. <clears throat> Those who had seized... Uh, who had seized Jesus, led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, and this is where John left it off, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together, but Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the, uh, of the high priest. And he entered in and sat down with the officers, or better servants, to see the outcome. Now the chief priest and the whole council kept trying to obtain, catch that, kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up, said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? Beginning of verse 63, but Jesus kept silent. And really, that is the end of what is commonly called the second trial. What have you got? Notice the setting, those who seized him. As you recall from our study, there were soldiers, but the soldiers are gone. The many hundreds of soldiers that had come, as you have learned already, they were there for one purpose, and that is to keep crowd control down, like is being done all over the nation today because of potential parties or whatever. Okay, And they were basically there to control that. They had left. So what you're dealing with in Matthew chapter 26 when it says those had seized him, remember I said they let the temple police take him and take him off to Annas. They're going to the religious trials. And they're satisfied as soldiers that everything's under control. If they need us, we'll be back. And they haven't taken him to Pilate yet. So when it says those that seized him, that's who we're dealing with. Now he comes before Caiaphas and the others this is the Sanhedrin that we talked about last week. And the Sanhedrin basically developed from Moses. And the concept of the 70 people that were available plus Moses making it 71. And as I showed you last week, it took down through the ages, the structure became different, but that's what you have. And you'll notice in our text in Matthew, in the setting that Peter follows behind, we'll deal with his denials basically. But he tried to, isn't this interesting? He wants to be close to Jesus, but not too close. He wants to see what's going on because he's puzzled. Now remember, before we put him down, remember last week or two weeks ago, he cut off the ear of Malchus, and then the Lord corrected him on that. So he has got a zeal, and so he's still trying to follow the Lord, but he doesn't want to get too close. And what happens is he comes to the courtyard of Caiaphas. Now that's important. Why? As we look in Matthew chapter 26, and we see that Paul... Uh, Peter, excuse me, followed him into the courtyard of the high priest. That's where the trial is taking place. That is illegal. Because the trial of somebody who would be t potentially put to death had to take place, one, in the temple. Two, it had to be public. 
And three, it had to be in the daytime. All of that, again, is being violated. It's all illegal. And Peter's following us along. And to try to get it in your mind's eye, it was probably a situation where Annas and Caiaphas were pretty much connected as far as residence. Because he went from Annas right over to Caiaphas. And they would have a big courtyard, and that's probably what you have here in between. It would have been very common in the Middle East. It was not like they had to go across the country or they had to travel to another town. He went to the home of Annas. Annas got frustrated. He knew the council was assembled now in his son-in-law's house, which was illegal, and takes him across the courtyard in this private setting. And what happens? There's the actions in verses 59 and 60. They seek, uh, it says there literally, the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false witnesses. Now get that. No charges have been brought, so the council had no right to even hear it because there's no charges yet. And they were diligently seeking, and honestly what they wanted, and I won't turn there for time's sake, you mark in your notes Matthew 14, verses 53 to 56, because there it specifically says they were trying to get witnesses so that they would get the death penalty. That's their motive. Well, to understand that, I want you to turn to the two texts we looked at last week and see it again. I want you to see what they're supposed to be doing. Go with me to Deuteronomy. Other than that, you won't get the magnitude of what's happening here. Deuteronomy 16. We just look at this and say, yeah, illegal trial. Yeah, these men did it. They had wrong motives. But I want you to see how bad it is. God had allowed the religious leaders to judge the people. But there were some guidelines. Let me read both texts right away. Deuteronomy 16, just three verses or four, verses 18 through 20. So three verses. You shall appoint for yourselves judges and officers in all your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you, now watch, according to your tribes, that they shall judge the people with righteous judgments. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. And you shall not take a bribe. That's how they get them to the trial in the first place. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of justice, of righteousness. Verse 20. Justice and only justice you shall pursue. That's what they were to pursue. That you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God has given you. That was the instruction that the Sanhedrin was supposed to be following. Go to chapter 19. A couple more verses. Again, I want these drilled. These should be someplace in your Bible anytime you read the gospel account. In Deuteronomy 19, we'll pick it up in verse 15. And I want you to see what's going on here. What is it? Pick it up in verse 15. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of the iniquity of any, of any, of any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three, that's why they're looking for it, a matter was to be confirmed. Now notice verse 16. If a malicious witness rises up against a man and accuses him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute 
shall be, be stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, who will be in the office in those days. The judges shall investigate thoroughly. And if the witness is a false witness, which we have in our text, and he has accused a brother falsely, verse 19, here's your instruction. You shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. The rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. And then as I told you last week, that is the text of verse 30, 21. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. That is always, it's misused today, but always in the text of judging. If someone takes an eye, you take an eye. Someone was going to go look for the death penalty. So what have you got? In our text in Matthew, I want you to understand that. Number one, they had no right to be obtaining false witnesses. They were supposed to be objective. They were supposed to be not partial. They were supposed to be listening and investigating every single detail. When, where, how, whatever. And it clearly says they have false witnesses. They're frustrated. They don't take a single one of them out and have them crucified. All they're interested in is Christ being crucified. How low and how illegal can you get? Then, in what I read, in verses 60 through the beginning, or the end of verse 62 back in Matthew 26, then they finally get two who agree. Right, sure they do. I will tell you this. Compare the synoptic gospels and you will find out that even these two men did not agree. They misquoted the Lord. Some of them didn't say the same thing, but all that everybody heard was this temple will be taken down. The Lord was referring actually to his own resurrection and his death. They took it as the temple here. Some used it in different ways when it's expanded in the synoptics, and they really still did not have two. There was not one legitimate accusation that could be presented against Jesus Christ. What a testimony, folks, to the character of Jesus Christ. For three years, he's been teaching publicly. He's taught in their markets openly, in their synagogues. He's performed miracles. These people hate him. And they can't get two people. They can't even get one person that can accuse him of any wrongdoing. You say, well, that's because you're reading the Bible, Pastor Dan. Let me tell you something. If you think for one minute that the Jews would not have recorded by Josephus or other historians what Jesus Christ did wrong to prove that he was not God, it would be there in your history books. It's not there because there isn't anything that could be rightfully charged against our Savior. He was a lamb without spot. Then comes the third one, very quickly. The third part of it, not even recorded in John, is the Lamb's judgment, and that's verses 63 through 68 of our text in Matthew. It's interesting. Let me give you the references in Mark chapter 15, verse 1, and back in John 18. In case you're still there, I will just read that one to you. In John 18 and verse 28, they wait till the morning because it says, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. 
When you compare with the synoptics, you find out that in between this little verse here, what happens is they still didn't have any witnesses, and Jesus didn't say anything about this too, and what are they going to do? So they go back and hold the council. They know that they've got to wait till morning. They're not even supposed to be doing this at night. And the final aspect of it is they look for self-incrimination. That's what happens. Back in Matthew chapter 26, look at it. The Lord keeps silent. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. They're frustrated that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And he said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see, takes it a step further, goes back to the Psalms, the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Did Jesus Christ claim to be God? Absolutely. Is he God? Excuse me, very God? Absolutely. Does being the Son of God equate him with being God? Absolutely. All those things that are argued for about today. Absolutely. And what happens? The high priest got the message. He tears his clothes. He said, he has blasphemed. What further evidence do we need of witnesses? Because he couldn't get anybody. You've heard him yourself. According to the rules, and I didn't go back to all of this. I gave you some of them last week. They couldn't do this. In fact, they were supposed to go to him and say, here's what you're accused of. They can't do it. And then they're supposed to say, who's your witnesses? Not try to get him to be self-discriminating. Uh, incriminating and yet they take that action all totally illegal by the way the tearing of his garment here's the reference for you Matthew 21 10 no matter how bad the situation was the high priest could not according to God's law tear his garment in the presence of anybody else because it would lend itself to partiality that's illegal you know why he did that because in their laws you remember in Matthew how the Lord says to his disciples, you've heard that it said, but let me tell you what it really says. This is an example. Because in the rabbinical writings, he was allowed, if it was the death penalty, that somebody claimed to be the, the, the Messiah to say blasphemy and tear his garments. That was absolutely in opposition to what God revealed. But they allowed themselves to do that because they distorted the word of God. Now those are the facts. What does all of that mean? Let me give you two applications, and I'm going to use the Lord last because it's going to tie right into communion. But let me come back to us. What about us? Have you ever looked at situations that seem to be totally unjust? And they just, the just seem to be succeeding. Does that sound like Psalm 73? I hope I got that right. I think it's 73. And what happens is you look around and you say, you know, the unjust seem to be prospering. They seem to be gaining victory. It's not fair. You want to be honest. Even Christians get caught up into this. We expect everything fair. We wouldn't say this, but we don't want trials in our life. We want everything to be perfect. When we're into a trial, most of the time, if it's, especially if it's physical, we ask for God to do a miracle, get us out of it. God doesn't design them that way. Difficulties are designed to help us to grow. Situations in life will come even into your life as a Christian that are unfair. Stephen did not deserve to be stoned, but he was. Daniel did not deserve to be in the lion's den. He was. Joseph did not deserve all that he went through. He was going through that. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't deserve to be in the fiery furnace. God allowed that in their life. And they were willing to go and say this, whether God delivers us or not, I don't know, but I'm going to do it because I won't dishonor God. And I could go on, and I could go on. What I want you to catch is God was using all of these difficult situations, all of these trials, as we would put it, all of this suffering so that they could grow and shine forth, as Peter says, as gold, more precious than gold, through the trials and suffering that they were experiencing. We don't like trials. We don't like difficulties. We want to be without it. We want to be fair and treated like everybody else. But God had an absolute perfect design for the ones that I have shown to you. Same thing with Peter. Same thing with Paul. Same thing with every one of the disciples. And certainly when I get to Jesus Christ, obviously with him. But God was in it. Even though it didn't look good in the outside. 1 Peter chapter 3, for your own reference, says that we ought to rejoice when we suffer wrongfully. Not when we deserve it. That's 1 Peter 3. I think it's beginning in verse 8. 8, 18, somewhere around there. But what happens is we go through situations and we sometimes get, we're involved in suffering because we deserve it. But God said, happy is the Christian. But when you're living for God and when you're doing what's right and you're doing what God wants, you suffer. James, we all know James chapter 1, right? Eef, we don't like it. Rejoice. Praise God. Be joyful. Be happy when you fall into various trials. Right. Why? Knowing that the trying of your faith works patience and helps you to mature and helps you to grow. We're here to serve Christ, fellow believers. We're here to bring glory to him in all that we do. And it's not going to be easy. You will suffer if you live godly. If you don't live godly, don't worry about it. You say, well, that's what I want. Then you better question your salvation. You better examine to see if you're in the faith. Very bluntly. In Jesus' case, turn with me to one passage. Go with me to 1 Peter 2. Obviously, I quoted from Isaiah... We could spend the time in Isaiah 53 this morning. And I tell you, I might as well just use this for, for preparation for communion for my reading. But 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's turn there. All this in a simple verse where John says, and they led him to Caiaphas. And he suffered all of this unjustly. Uh, 1 Peter, let me get there. Chapter 2, you know where I'm going anyway. Pick it up in verse 22. Let me go back to 21 because it says it's also for an example. You have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered. This is what I was just saying a minute ago. For you. He suffered for you. Leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. What do you mean by that? Well, he tells us. Who committed no sin. Nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And we've just witnessed some of this in Matthew. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. What did he do? He kept entrusting himself to him 
who judges righteously. That's what he did. That's the example. I didn't even go on to expand because I'm running out of time. How illegal was it? They spat on him. They hit him right in the trial. Blindfolded him and basically said, hey, guess who it is? Horrible. How could he go through that? By the way, Peter is going to be brought into a situation, a Paul, and, and what's going to happen is when he's brought into a situation like this, he's going to rebuke them until he finds out it was the high priest, and then he's going to back off. That's our tendency to react because Jesus had a bigger focus in mind, and that was to take the cup that I showed you in John again. This is the cup that the Father has for me. This is the cost of salvation, totally unjust. You say, yeah, look what those soldiers did. Look what those priests did. No, 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 no. Look what your sin and my sin did. That's what cost him to go to the cross. And thank God he was so focused. And he didn't retaliate. He took the Father's cup, verse 24. And this is what communion's all about, reminding us that he himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross. That we might die to sin and to live to righteousness, for by his stripes or wounds we have been healed. And that's talking about our living for Christ. We were dead, according to Ephesians, and Christ made us alive if you trusted in him. If you're here today without Christ, Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life. No one can get to the Father or go to heaven or be in the presence of God except it be through Jesus Christ. We are all sinners and come short of the glory of God. That's why the lamb had to go before and suffer. Because the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. He's the only one that could give salvation. And if you haven't come to him, he's the one place that you have to go. It's not based on church. It's not based on religion. It's not based on works. It's based on belief in the one that did all the work. And he faced all of this. And if you're a believer today, the things that we're seeing him face in these trials and we will see in the illegal trials before Pilate, all of that was his focus on the Father's will so that you and I could have eternal life and be with him. That's what the love of God truly is. That's what John 3.16 really means. And as we come to the communion table this morning, as the elders get prepared for that. If you're born again, we encourage you to come here. But remember, we are to live for righteousness now. We are to be dead to sin in a practical way every day by our lives being yielded to the Spirit of God. We're still in this flesh. We still sin, but we need to confess that. We need to look to God. We need to realize that we need to depend upon what Christ has done for us. We don't have to submit. We can yield to the Spirit of God. And if you're born again, we invite you to partake of the communion. But it is a reminder because the warning that I usually turn to in Corinthians, that's a warning for believers. We should not be taking this cup lightly. And if we're not right with the Lord, if we're not right with other, you know, sometimes we think we're right with the Lord and we're not even right with one another. The whole picture of communion is the unity in Christ because he has died for us. And that we are one with another who are partaking. It reminds us of the cost. Let's live for him. If you haven't come to Christ, our prayer is that you do so that you can participate.
At this time, we'll invite the elders and we'll observe the communion.